Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2 is one of the most encouraging verses in the New Testament because in it the writer holds before us the strategy of the Lord Jesus in dealing with difficulties. And how important it is that at all times we remember that we are disciples of the Lord. And the word disciple, the Greek word, if you like Greek words, is methetes. The Greek word means a follower and a learner. That's what we're called to be, a follower and a learner of the Lord Jesus. We follow him where he leads, and we do what he says. We don't simply learn his word, storing it away in our memory. No, that doesn't do us an awful lot of good except feed our head knowledge. No, learning from Jesus means being changed by what he says. Remember how he himself said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He talked about the importance of doing rather than just hearing his word. So, this word disciple is a very important one. We follow Jesus and we do what he says. And in following him, we are plunged into a verse like verse 2 of Hebrews 12. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Consider him. In other words, learn from his example. And what is that example here? Well, wonderfully, it's an example that encourages us and helps us to stand through difficult days. Surely the most appalling thing that the Lord Jesus had to contemplate was the suffering of the cross, the crucifixion, the agony of being separated from his Father, the physical agony, the mental agony, the dreadful experience of being crucified and all the things that went with it. How awful to have to face such things. Well, he did. The great question is, how was he able to come through with such a sense of victory? So that at the end of his suffering, he was able to cry out to God, into your hands I commit my spirit. Well, surely there's the key. Look at that verse again who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Yes, he was able to suffer, as he did, in that unspeakable fashion, because of the joy that was set before him. What was the joy? Well, clearly the joy of heaven. It was where he belonged. It was his heavenly home. He was going to return there to be with his father. And it was that revelation, that total confidence, that enabled him to pass through the great time of testing that we call the Passion. I believe, too, if I'm honest, that there was something else in that the joy set before him included you. Because he knew what his death was accomplishing, it was accomplishing 
salvation for those who would put their faith and trust in him. Isn't that something? To think that you were part of the Lord's joy that enabled him to endure the cross. Now, I share that with you because, to my mind, we need to understand this principle and to get it firmly etched in our faith. This vision of glory, this expectation of heaven, this revelation of Jesus, the glorified Savior, this must fill our vision at all times as men and women of faith, because when it does, then we are able to stand in the evil day, in the day which is rapidly approaching. Now, this is not to be a scaremonger. It is, I trust, to be a realist. Jesus spoke of these days, and he spoke of them in extremely disparaging terms. And so we recognize the signs around us, and so we need to be prepared. But I believe we need to be prepared for joy, first and foremost, so that we can be prepared for trouble. Because that experience is only, again, preparing us for the joy of kingdom life when we go to be with the Lord. So it starts with joy and ends with joy. And whatever lies between, we're determined to be overcomers in that because our faith is in Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Well, Andrew selected some mighty and inspiring hymns tonight. And it is good to be inspired because the Holy Spirit clearly uses our praises to encourage us. It's so fascinating, isn't it, that so often in the Scriptures we discover that praise and worship precedes the army of the Lord. Lindy and I have just finished a a week in prayer and meditation on God's Word, and we honed in on the reign of King Jehoshaphat of Judah. A remarkable thing happened in his reign. I encourage you to have a look at it. Have a look at 2 Chronicles, chapter 17 to 20. You'll be encouraged. But one of the things you notice there is that when the army went forth to battle and God routed the enemy, those who were the praise leaders went in front. Doesn't necessarily mean to say that the praise leaders in this church must always be in the forefront of spiritual warfare, although you could certainly make a case for that. But it is certainly to say that a church that is praising the Lord as it should do is equipping itself very well to be engaged in spiritual warfare. This, of course, is the essence of what we are reading here in Hebrews 11 and 12. I want really to encourage you with this because, as I have said several times, we need encouragement in these days. We can't just remain indifferent to what is taking place around us. We have to see it in eternal terms, to see that God is active in history. It really is His story. And as we prepare ourselves by responding to the revelation of Jesus so we shall be made strong to cope, not only with things that are happening out there, but also things that are happening in here. Because it's very interesting, isn't it, how the first front, if you will, of warfare 
in the heavenlies, in the kingdom, is internal. The battle is either won in here or it's not won anywhere. And if I can't get the victory over myself, I have no chance whatever of gaining the victory over an enemy that is attacking me from outside. Now, this is clear from the Scripture, where we are everywhere encouraged to be holy in the most practical way possible. And as we prepare ourselves, this is why I'm so convinced that we need to acknowledge church more and more and more. When I say church, of course, I do mean the church that Jesus builds, the church which is founded upon the rock, which is Him. You'll remember how in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, the Lord, in challenging Peter, says, Who do men say that I am? And he says, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the Lord Jesus then acknowledges that that revelation came straight out of heaven. And he says to Peter, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, in saying rock, he wasn't meaning Peter. It's a completely different word. Petros, which is the word for Peter, means a pebble or a piece of grit. But mighty rock, Petra, on this rock I will build my church, means something very different from Peter. And in fact, of course, it was the statement that Peter had made, you are the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is the foundation of the church. There can be no other foundation than that one. That is the foundation of the church, the church that is promised victory. The first thing that Jesus ever said about his church was this, the gates of hell will not hold out against it or prevail against it. There it is in Matthew 16. The very first thing has to do with confronting the forces of darkness and with the assurance that his church, the church he builds, the church which is surely built upon his foundation will always be victorious when it ministers in his name. Now, this is great, isn't it? But it demonstrates that when we're brought into the kingdom, we're not brought in to remain as individuals. We may be brought in as individuals, and indeed we are. We have to come by personal faith in Christ and through baptism and receiving His Spirit. This is personal, but once we are born again, we have been brought into church, into relationship, from the word go. It's an alarming thing. It happened twice yesterday, curiously. Lindy and I travel around, as you know, as I preach, and we meet various Christians in various locations every week. It's different. But there are common patterns that we're seeing, and it's alarming how many Individual Christians are no longer worshiping in churches. Now, there may be good reasons for it. Maybe they've been hurt. I don't know. But ultimately, there can't be a good enough reason for it because the Lord Jesus died for His church. And we must be in relationship with one another. Otherwise, we're not being faithful to our calling as disciples of Christ. Paul puts it very strongly in, Rome, in, uh, in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians where he says, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. It's in the corporate identity of the body of Christ that we truly express the life of Christ. 
Consider for a moment, we are men and women who reveal Jesus to the world, but what do we reveal? Well, of course, we reveal his character, do we not? Indeed, we do. What is his character? Paul describes it in Galatians chapter 5, where he's describing the fruit of the Spirit, which is exhibited in the body of Christ. What are the fruits of the Spirit? You know them as well as I. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. And yet, if you think about that, they're none other than a description of the character of the Lord Jesus. Yes, indeed. But he's describing the body of Christ as each one of these glorious fruits is visible in a company of Christians, so the beauty of Jesus is let loose in them. But if it's not there for them to see, how can people see Jesus? Similarly, we have to acknowledge that when we want to see Jesus, we're not just seeing the character of God, we're seeing the power ministry of Christ let loose. When people encountered Jesus, they encountered a holy life, but they also encountered a dynamic ministry. They were changed. They were not changed through the holiness of Jesus. People didn't get healed because Jesus was holy. They didn't get healed because Jesus was gracious. They got healed because power went forth from him. He ministered healing. He ministered deliverance. He ministered the word of knowledge and wisdom to crack open people's lives. The prophetic word. These were aspects of his ministry. How interesting and fascinating, therefore, that again Paul, particularly in Ephesians as well as in Corinthians, talks about the gifts of the Holy Spirit being let loose in individuals, yes, but in the body of Christ collectively. Healing, deliverance, prophecy, word of knowledge, word of wisdom, all these mighty gifts let loose where? In the body of Christ. And as the Holy Spirit is orchestrating these gifts within the body, so the power of Jesus is let loose through the body into the world. Now, you see, it is the living presence of Jesus. This is what we are called upon to manifest to the world. That's something glorious, isn't it? We're not like the old song used to say, I'd love to teach the world to sing. Oh, that's great. I'd love to teach the world to sing hymns. No, that's not the responsibility of the church. The responsibility of the church is to minister to the world in the power of the Spirit and thus exhibit the character of the Lord Jesus. And so as we're preparing ourselves to go and minister to the world, we're actually setting ourselves up for trouble. I suppose the most basic way of ministering to the world today is to declare the truth about Jesus, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. You can't say that. You can't speak out the fundamental truth of our faith. But in certain cities in this country, you can't say it now. 
at least not openly, to the people who need to hear it. Oh, you can go on proclaiming it in a church, but who wants to do that? Preaching to the converted. We need to be out there, do we not? That's what the whole idea of the glass here is about, so that we can see that world, so that the world is constantly in the vision of the body of Christ here in Burlington Baptist. Isn't that exciting? hope you've seen it that way and haven't just seen it as people able to look in and see what we're up to. That's good, but it's so that we can look out and see what they're up to and get in amongst them. Hallelujah. What an exciting concept. Praise the Lord. Well, we need to understand that we have the ministry that can set them free, but it's going to be extremely costly. Lindy and I were up in Blackburn a few weeks ago, and in Blackburn, if I were to stand in the middle of the street and declare the uniqueness of Jesus Christ, the police would definitely move me on and shut me up or threaten me with imprisonment, certainly arrest. And why? Well, we all know why. It's not politically correct because there are so many people in that city who hate Jesus. They might be religious, but they don't love Jesus. Many of them are Muslim. And the belief is that to preach the uniqueness of Christ is an offense to the Muslim, so therefore you mustn't preach the uniqueness of Christ. Well, if you can't preach the gospel openly, what's the use of preaching it in church? You know, the whole concept of our saying, we need to make the church attractive so that people want to come to church— It is frankly a nonsense, isn't it? Why so? Because it's standing on its head the command of Jesus. He did not say, invite the people to come to you. He said, you go into all the world. It's a complete reversal, isn't it? And so we can't expect people to come into the church, glass windows or not. So we've got to get to them where they are. But that's going to get very difficult now. And it's why we need to have this throbbing, pulsating, revolutionary vision of Jesus and the glories of heaven, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. That's the key, do you see? The revelation of Jesus. Isn't it interesting that there is one book above all others in the Bible that majors on showing forth the glory of Jesus. Which book is that? Don't all shout at once. Revelation, certainly. Do you know what the full title of that book is? The Revelation... hmm? The Revelation of John... No, if you look at it, you'll find it's the revelation of something else. What is it? Talking about verse 1 now. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which he gave to John. And John wrote it down. But it's the revelation of Jesus. Jesus is revealed in that book par excellence. And if we want revelation of the glory of Jesus, which we have to have, how can we possibly have it if we ignore the very book that's provided for us to get that revelation? Interesting, isn't it? You ask Christians, how often do they read Revelation? 
It's a locked book to many. Well, you see, it's so difficult to understand, isn't it? So difficult to understand, and so many people have read it and come up with all kinds of screwy interpretations. No, 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 no. We, we leave that well alone, thank you. We leave it to the theologians. Well, if you leave it to them, God help us all, because they never talk about Revelation. Many ministers never preach about Revelation. And yet this is the very book that contains the most wonderful blessing. Just listen to this. This is the opening of the book. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now listen, blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. Now, if that was true then, it is much more true now. But notice what's attached to the reading of this book. Blessing! Do you need a blessing from God? Well, here's one waiting for you. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it. You see, it's not just a question of reciting it and saying, well, I'll get blessed. No, 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 no. You've got to take it to heart. You've got to receive it into your spirit. But receive what? The revelation of Jesus. Why? Because we need to be built up by that revelation so that it's shining in our thinking. We're filled with the glory of Jesus. Now, many of you may think this is all very extreme, and I have to tell you it is. It's extremely important. It's extremely important to God. And I believe in your heart of hearts, you know it's important. We're called into these days quite deliberately. It's no accident that we're alive now. You may think, oh, well, I wish I'd been born at some other time. (laughs) Never say it, because the Lord has reserved you for now. Because we are the generation that will see these things begin to take place. I can't give you a time. Of course I can't. All I can tell you is that the signs of the times are pointing to the soon return of Messiah Jesus. And we cannot go on ignoring those signs. Now is the time for us to search the Scriptures and to look hard. What is the Lord saying? What is He preparing us for? How is He preparing us? One of the ways, for sure, is to sharpen our appreciation of the glory of heaven. And another, which I've alluded to, is the vital nature of the body of Christ, that we belong to one another to submit to one another, to open up to one another, to confess our faults to one another, all those hateful and hideous things that we really don't want to do. No, we don't. But are we to continue at the level where we are, or have we a hunger for the deep things of God and for the real presence of God in our midst? I think these are questions to ponder, and I want to leave you with them because time has run on, and I know that many of you will be thinking through what I've been saying and asking the Lord, Lord, 
What is it amongst the things Chris has shared which you're really wanting us to get hold of now? May the Lord bless you in that quest. In his dear name, amen.